Open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 5 again. It's where we've been the past few weeks. It's where we'll be for the next several weeks. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 2 through 12. The opening portion of the Sermon on the Mount known as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are all about Jesus pointing us in a direction opposite of where the world thinks we should be going. The world looks at life and it says, happy are the wealthy, happy are those who have everything together, happy are those who, who make much of themselves, and we have our own list of worldly beatitudes. And Jesus comes along with this Sermon on the Mount and gives us an introduction to this sermon called the Beatitudes, which, by the way, in preaching class you're told that you're supposed to have really good introductions to your sermons. And Jesus does that. With the Beatitudes, he gives people a list of traits of what kingdom citizens should look like and says, these people are happy if they do these things or if they are like these things. And those things seem totally the opposite of what the world says. The world says you have to do this and this and this. And Jesus comes and flips everything on its head. And so we talked about, I used an illustration a couple of weeks ago of flying upside down and how pilots can easily get disoriented sometime. And the whole world is, is flying upside down based on its own fleshly instincts. And Jesus comes to turn the world right side up. And those who are part of his kingdom, those who are believers, they've had their life set right side up. And now we see in these Beatitudes what truly makes a person happy. We are walking slowly through Jesus' kingdom manifesto, which is the Sermon on the Mount. But I want to remind you that this is simply the place we are as we're going chronologically through the life of Jesus. I had someone this week ask me when the Sermon on the Mount series was going to be done. The Sermon on the Mount is just like part of a much larger series that ain't going to be done for years, okay? And that's our Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ series where we're walking through the life of Christ chronologically using all four of the Gospels. In this sermon, Jesus, as we have said before, is preaching to his disciples. So he's preaching to those who are his followers. And there's a larger crowd listening in, but the disciples are the focus. And he's preaching about how disciples should live, how their lives should be different from or distinct from the world. So this is a sermon by King Jesus for kingdom citizens about kingdom living. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and several of you have asked me about the book that I mentioned a couple weeks ago. It's simply called um, Studies on the Sermon on the Mount. There's two volumes, Martin Lloyd-Jones. You can get them together in one volume on, on Amazon. But Martin Lloyd-Jones says, read the Beatitudes, and there you have a description of what every Christian is meant to be. So happy or blessed, indeed, are those who live under the rule of King Jesus. Let me also remind you that there are some patterns here in these Beatitudes. Before we read the passage this morning, there's some patterns here. Uh, first of all, I want to remind you that the first and the last Beatitudes are both attached to the same present tense promise, which says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This means that this promise functions sort of like brackets that encompass all the other promises of the Beatitudes which are all future promises, such as they shall inherit the earth or they shall be comforted. So all those that fall in between these, these, this bracket here are, are spoken of. These, these are future graces guaranteed to those of us who are now part of the kingdom 
of God. So to be in the kingdom of heaven means to be able to look forward to with rock-solid certainty these other promises. Also remember there's a 3-1-3-1 pattern to these eight Beatitudes. The first three Beatitudes are all about emptying ourselves. And we're still in those first three this week. The fourth one is about being filled. Once we're emptied, we're filled with something. And the next three are about the overflow of that filling. And the last one is about how the world reacts to someone who's filled like that. And they react with persecution. So far, we've only covered the first two Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We talked about that means recognizing our spiritual destitution. And then blessed are those who mourn. And that means simply having a deep and profound sadness over our sin that leads us to repentance. And repentance on a personal level, repentance on a corporate level, and then being sad over sin on a cosmic level as well. Now today we're going to focus on the third beatitude. And I want to read all of them though like we've done each time we've looked at the beatitudes. So please stand if you would. We're going to start in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 5. Read down through verse 12. And we stand because we honor the reading of God's word. And this is God's infallible and perfect word. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this day. Father, we pray that you would add your blessing now to the reading of your infallible word. Grant me now grace to preach and expound upon your perfect word accurately. Grant us all now the grace to hear and apply your faultless word rightly. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Oh Lord, I sincerely praise you that your steadfast love never ceases. Your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is our portion, says our souls. Therefore, we will hope in you, God. Oh Lord, you are good to those who wait for you. To the soul who seeks you. It is good that we should wait quietly for your great salvation. Thank you, Father. May you be glorified as we look at this next beatitude. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I want to examine meekness in three ways. First of all, I want to quickly look at what meekness is not. Then we're going to spend the bulk of our time looking at what meekness is. And then we'll conclude by looking at the promise that is attached to this trait of meekness. First and real quickly, what meekness is not. 
In our world today, some people associate meekness with being timid or being a mousy kind of person. Others may think meekness means being mild-mannered or easygoing as if it were some sort of natural disposition that people are born with. But overall, many view meekness as being simply a pushover or a doormat. Regardless, most people associate meekness with weakness. Many people in our day, and in Jesus' day, matter of fact, would consider meekness a vice and not a virtue. But that would be a terrible misunderstanding of what Jesus is teaching us through this word, meekness. So what, what is meekness this morning? Well, I have to be honest with you, the word is very difficult to define. Our English language comes up short. The Greek word used here is sometimes translated in other passages as gentle or humble. Certainly those words, gentleness or humbleness, um, are part of what it means to be meek. And that's why they are used as synonyms. But meekness is much, much more than just gentleness or humility. To help us, I think we need to consider how the word was actually used in in classic Greek. Um, It was used to refer to people, you know, to meek people. But it was also used quite regularly by three different groups of people in association with their jobs, with what they did. Doctors used it, sailors used it, and farmers used it. The doctor used the word meek to describe a medicine that soothed and brought relief from pain. So they would call that medicine a meek medicine. It soothed and brought relief from pain. Sailors would use the word meek to describe a cool breeze that refreshed the sailors and eased their journey. So it's a meek wind would be a cool breeze that brought refreshment and helped the journey along. Farmers would use the word meek to refer to an animal that had been broken and was now useful for work. So a meek horse or a meek mule is an animal that had been broken. I think these are very, very helpful to us. It has been said often and by many other preachers that meekness is power under control. And that's an okay definition. I don't think it's complete enough. I'll give you my definition here in a minute. But meekness is power under control. It's quite the opposite of weakness. The medicine the doctor uses is powerful and brings relief, but it is capable of bringing harm if it is abused. The wind that refreshes the sailors is refreshing and helpful, but can lead them off course or even bring destruction if it begins to blow too hard. And the animal that is broken in is useful. But, as anyone who has seen a rodeo can tell you, that same animal can wreak much havoc if it's out of control. A horse is a lovely and helpful creature. A bucking bronco can be deadly. So Jesus uses this word here to refer to those who are part of his kingdom. We too, like the wild horse, have to be broken by God. This is why sinful men rebel against the idea of meekness. We want to assert our sinful selves, not be broken. Uh, my family watched recently the, the old movie, Man from Snowy River. Remember that movie? Okay. It's a good movie. And uh, in the Man from Snowy River, the, the main character has to break this wild horse. He has to bring it under his submission. This wild horse has been wreaking havoc because the other horses from the farms and stuff have been breaking out of their pens and following and, and joining this mob of horses led by this one wild stallion. And so the man from Snowy River has to use his whip and bring this horse under 
submission, and he does it at the end of the movie. We have to come to an end of ourselves. We must be broken of our wild and open rebellion against God. And how does that breaking happen? Well, God must do a powerful work in us, and this is where we see the logical flow of the Beatitudes. He shows us our sin, our poverty of spirit, and he leads us to a sadness over our sin, to repentance of our sin, from our sin, which is to mourn, and therefore we become broken. So meekness is this idea that we are now useful to the king and to his kingdom because God has broken us of our sinful self-focus, our self-assertion. That's why I entitled the sermon today, uh, I'm trying to give all these Beatitudes similar titles, Kingdom Citizens Are Happily Broken. Kingdom citizens are happily broken. And so you can see why the world doesn't like the idea of meekness. And why the world would push back against a message like today's. And say, no, you should be self-confident, self-assertive. You have lots of self-esteem. And God says, let me break you of yourself so you can know what you were actually really created for. And that is to glorify God and to minister to his kingdom. So the world says happiness and blessing comes when we assert ourselves. God says true happiness comes when we are broken of self. The world says put yourself forward and get now a piece of this world for yourself. The king says come to an end of yourself and wait for you will inherit the world. So here is my very simple definition of meekness. I'm going to build on this power under control. And as we walk through what meekness is, you'll see where the rest of this definition is coming from. And it should be on your notes here. Meekness is power under control that results in a quiet submission to and confidence in God's will. Meekness is power under control that results in a quiet submission to and confidence in God's will. It is a spirit-wrought, divinely enabled work that changes us in three ways. So, as we continue in your notes, the first thing I want us to see is meekness changes our posture toward ourselves. It changes our posture toward us. What I mean by that is it's simply that meekness is the continuing work of emptying. That's why I pointed out that pattern again. It's the continuing process of the Lord emptying us of ourselves that we see here in these Beatitudes. These first three Beatitudes are the ones about emptying ourselves so we can be filled with the proper type of hunger and thirst, which is a hunger for God. Meekness is a key part of this process, and it's a key part of us seeing ourselves for who we really are. It is a disposition of one who is poor in spirit and one who mourns over his sin. You see, a believer who is proud, a Christian who is proud and self-absorbed, you see that type of person, and you see a man who has not yet understood what kingdom living is all about. The man-centered approach of the modern American church, I'm afraid, robs men and women of the true blessedness, the true happiness they could have if they'd only understand this beatitude. Because the modern church in America is bought into pop psychology that we need to pump up the people. Instead of pointing the people to the one who can truly satisfy them. And that's what this beatitude is all about. As we've already stated, the world says to be self-assured, self-confident. 
Look out for number one. Grab what you can while you can. You deserve the best. Have it your way. Stand up for your rights. We live in a rights-crazy culture. And we think everything's a right these days. Meek people learn to let go of their supposed rights, seeing themselves for who they really are, namely that they're not entitled to anything. Any sense of rights or entitlement that emerges in our thinking is simply the stench of our old dead self rising to our senses. When we see our poverty of spirit and when we genuinely mourn, then we know we do not deserve anything but hell. We are not entitled to anything but the full wrath of God. And only then, only when we understand our poverty of spirit and mourn over our sin and be the meek kind of people that God's calling us to be, only then can we agree with the Apostle Paul when he says in Romans 12, 3, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. See your sin, mourn over your sin, and you will think rightly about yourself. The meek man, because his trust is in God's will, doesn't have to look out for himself. He knows God is already doing that. He doesn't have to demand that his rights be recognized. He doesn't have to assert himself to further his own agenda in his own strength. Why? Because he's more concerned with furthering God's agenda in God's strength. And that's why meekness not only changes our posture towards ourselves, but it also changes our posture toward God. It changes our posture toward God. Meekness is a quiet submission to and confidence in, and I could add other words, trust in, faith in, resting in God's will. We need to consider where Jesus pulls this beatitude from. What he's quoting is Psalm 37, verse 11. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to Psalm 37 real quick. Find Psalm 37. Psalm 37. It's very important for us to understand what Jesus means by meekness. We cannot just superimpose the world's idea of meekness upon what Jesus is saying. Even though the classical Greek understanding of meekness is helpful... We don't even want that to fully define what Jesus is saying here. We want to go to where Jesus is pulling his comment from, which is Psalm 37. So let me read the whole psalm here. I'm just, I mean, let me read just the first 11 verses of this psalm. The whole psalm is a little bit lengthy, so we're going to focus on the first 11 verses. Psalm 37, verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. 
Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now there's more, much more to this psalm. But for now, let's just notice a few things from these first 11 verses. First, I want you to look at verse 9 and verse 11. When you look at verse 9, you will see a phrase that is repeated in verse 11, which is the phrase that these people shall inherit the land. Now, by the way, real quickly here, the word land, or the word translated as land here, both in the Greek and the Hebrew, can also be translated as earth. So that's why Jesus, or at least the translators of our ESV New Testament, believe that Jesus is referring to the earth here. Because the word can be used either way. When we see the phrase repeated like that, it means that there's parallelism being set up by the author that he's trying to draw our attention to. When you see repetitions in Scripture, let that be like little red flags that get your attention that something is trying to be said here. So what David is saying in verse 9 corresponds to what he is saying in verse 11. Matter of fact, we could say that David is simply saying the same thing in two different ways. Verse 9 says, those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 11 says, the meek shall inherit the land. So what does it mean to be meek? David is giving us a synonym. He says meekness simply is to wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. And what does it mean to wait on the Lord? Well, here, just in these first eight verses, we see what the meek person does, what the person who waits upon the Lord does. Verse 3, it implores us to trust in the Lord. So the meek, those who wait for the Lord, are those who trust in the Lord. And then we see in verse 4 that the meek person is the one who delights himself in the Lord. So we delight in the Lord. Verse 5 tells us this person is the one who commits his way to the Lord. So we, we commit our ways to the Lord and we trust in him knowing that he will act. Verse 7 tells us this person will be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. So, so we're brought back to waiting again. So, so, so here it is. The person who is meek is one who's trusting in the Lord, delighting in the Lord, committing one's way to the Lord, being still before the Lord, and waiting patiently for the Lord. That's meekness. That's meekness. So it starts with our posture toward ourselves. It moves toward our posture toward God. It's a quiet submission to and confidence in God's will. And when we have that type of trust, that type of rest, that type of waiting, then it changes our posture toward others. Meekness changes our posture toward others. It changes it in two ways. First, meekness changes the way we react to others. The way we react to others. When you have a type of meekness described in Psalm 37, then you fret not over others, over what they do, or over what they say. Verse 1 of Psalm 37, fret not yourself because of evildoers. You know what happens when you begin to fret? You begin to become envious. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers. Second half of verse 7, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Second half of verse 8, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. When you begin to get anxious and worried about what others 
And you react to others, what they say or what they do, in such a way that you, you're not trusting in God and knowing that he's sovereign and in control. You begin to drift into evil thoughts of your own. It's very simple. How does jealousy and bitterness, all this stuff, stir up in the church? Well, it's because we begin to fret and not rest. The meek man is not a fretting man. The words and the actions of mere men don't get him anxious. He trusts in, he delights in, he commits himself to, and is still before and waits upon the Lord. Nothing, no man, nor any circumstance can rock the man who puts his full confidence in God's will. So meekness, my friends, is not weakness. It is strong, yet quiet confidence and submission to God's will. The author of Hebrews was meek, and so he quotes the Psalms when he says in Hebrews thirteen six, we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see, the meek man quietly and confidently submits to God, and therefore he rests knowing that God is his defender. This is so important. A major element of meekness is learning to not fight back, but to quietly leave things in the hands of God. In our flesh, we always want to defend ourselves, justify ourselves. But the meek man does neither. Even when he's in the right. He doesn't go out of his way to make sure everyone knows he's right. He doesn't have to justify himself. To help us with this, we can look at Numbers chapter 12. And you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to kind of give a summary of this. In Numbers chapter 12, if you can recall that story, Miriam, Moses' sister, And Aaron, Moses' brother, began to speak against Moses because he married a Cushite woman. Now, there is reason to believe that this was a a racial bias on their part. The Cushite woman was probably a black African woman. But their motives were not only racial. There was jealousy involved as well. Verse 2. They said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? So, a nasty word begins to be spoken against Moses, the appointed prophet and leader of God's people. So how does this powerful man, and Moses was a powerful man, how does this powerful man respond? He does nothing. The text doesn't say he spoke back to them. The text doesn't say he justified his actions or anything. The text simply says in verse 3, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all. Who were on the face of the earth. Moses was meek. That's all the scripture tells us about Moses in this particular incident. He's meek. And then what do we see? It says suddenly the Lord shows up and condemns Miriam and Aaron's behavior while confirming his special relationship to Moses. Miriam is then struck with leprosy. Okay, leprosy changes your skin and the color of your skin. So I think there is irony here in God's judgment upon Miriam. So God brings judgment upon Miriam. She's struck with leprosy. So Moses is meek because he doesn't try to justify himself. He doesn't try to defend himself. He simply waits on God. But friends, meekness does more than just that. You see, also, it seeks the good of others. When Moses finally responds in verse 13, 
He doesn't give his sister and brother a big old, I told you so. Told you I was the man. If you guys would just shut your mouths. He doesn't do that. You know what Moses does in verse 13? It says this. He cried to the Lord. Oh God, please heal her. Please. He emphatically implores God to heal his sister. You see, meekness leads us to put edifying others above justifying ourselves. Meekness puts the edification of others ahead of the justification of ourselves. That's meekness. Quietly trusting in and submitting to God's will by quietly waiting for him, knowing that we need not defend ourselves. It's exactly what Paul spoke of. We, we looked at the Romans chapter 12 earlier in our Bible study today. It's just, literally, it's just coincidence, but there's no coincidence with God that we were in that passage at the same time that we were in this sermon. And I say this over and over and over again because I want you guys to make sure you know that I am not organized enough to plan things like that. That always is God's doing when anything happens like that in the church. Romans chapter 12, though, says this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. So do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's a connection here. The psalmist tells us in verse 37, when we fret, it tends only to evil. You know how you're overcome with evil? By evil? Is when you lack meekness. When I lack meekness. And I begin to worry about what people think about me. And I begin to try to justify myself. It tends only to evil. This all takes a work of God in our hearts. Friends, if we are ill-willed toward men, it is because we are self-willed toward God. If we are ill-willed toward our brothers, it is because we are in a posture of self-will with God. Those who submit to God's will rest in God's justice and in God's timing. David was an example of this in 1 Samuel 24 and in 1 Samuel 26 when he had opportunities to kill Saul. You remember the story? There was a couple of different opportunities that he had to kill Saul. One of the times, it's kind of a, almost kind of a funny story. Saul's actually going into a cave to use the restroom. It just so happens to be the cave where David and all of his mighty men are hiding. And there's, there's King Saul literally caught with his pants down and he could be taken out. And David doesn't do it. Matter of fact, only thing David does do is cut the corner off of his robe. And he felt guilty about that. 
And then later in chapter 26, Saul and all of his men are sleeping, and the bows who are supposed to be guarding Saul are snoozing. And David and his men walk into the camp, and they actually take Abner's spear, who was supposed to be protecting the king, and they walk off to the other side of the valley and wake up Saul and his people and again show that they could have killed Saul. Matter of fact, if you look at those passages, David's men were encouraging him. They were saying, look, the Lord has given him into your hands. But David wasn't going to interpret God's will by the circumstances. He knew it was wrong for him to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. And he wasn't going to do it. He would let God handle Saul. You see, a lot of times we determine God's will based upon the circumstances that work out the way we think they're working out for us. The meek man waits and is not willing to speed up God's will to get his own way. He waits and he trusts in God's timing. Eventually God did deal with Saul justly. Eventually David did, was elevated to the throne. How others treat us will often put our meekness to the test, won't it? How unbelievers treat us, of course, but even how our brothers, our believers treat us. If we are honest, and if we'll admit that we often, we will, I think we will admit that we often get our feathers ruffled when brothers come to us and in love try to show us our sins or our faults to try to help us to be more Christ-like. We get our feathers ruffled. We don't like that. Even when a Christian brother comes to us and points out faults in us, we don't like that. A meek man, friends, can take a tough word from a brother that is meant in love and grow in that. The first beatitude, if you remember, is recognizing our sin and our spiritual poverty. You know what? We're fine when we see it in ourselves, but the true test of meekness is how we react when others point out our spiritual poverty. Mm. Well, I'm okay discovering my own spiritual poverty, but Carrie, don't come up and show me how impoverished I am. Then our feathers really get ruffled. That's the test of meekness. We have a hard time being meek when a difficult word meant for our good comes our way. How much more when words and actions meant for our harm come our way do we struggle to be meek? So meekness changes the way we react to others. And meekness, friends, changes how we act toward others. Meek people are people who have learned to put others' needs above their own. Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look each of you not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Meek people are people who have learned to put others' needs above their own in all facets of life. Meekness should mark our relationships at home. Wives are called to submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord and are told to let their adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle, and that word there is the same word, a meek and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and to not be harsh with them, but are to live with them in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that their prayers may not be hindered. 
Children are called to obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And while fathers are called not to provoke their children to anger, lest they become discouraged, but instead are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, all of this takes meekness and submission. Mutual submission, to be sure, must happen in the home. And submission to God's perfect design for the unique roles and relationships in the home. Why do roles in the home end up causing conflict? Because we've taken them and we try to turn them into what we want them to be instead of quietly submitting to God's design, his will. The flesh fights against God's will for the home. The meek man submits to it. Quietly, confidently, and happily. So meekness should mark our relationships at home. And meekness should mark our relationships in the church. Within the body as a whole, Ephesians 4.1, Paul tells us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness. That word there uses the same root word that's used for meek. All gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. And then in Colossians 3, we're told to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5 to clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Again, it's the same root word toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It should mark the body as a whole, but it should be especially evident in the leadership. 1 Timothy 6.11 But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and here's the word, gentleness. Paul tells us that an elder must not be violent, but gentle, and not quarrelsome. Meekness marks the church body and meekness should mark the leadership of the church. Now some people think though that meekness means that we shy away from difficult conversations and we never confront sin. That's absolutely not the case. Quite the opposite. You see meekness ensures that we confront sin in the right way. Meekness and confrontation of sin actually go together. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And again, it's the same word. Gentleness. 2 Timothy 2, 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with, I sound like a broken record, gentleness. The reason confrontation of sin is so hard in the church is that it's so often been done without meekness. Again, meekness flows out of the first two Beatitudes so that confrontation of another's sin, of the speck in our brother's eye, comes after we have removed the sin, the log, in our own eye. The man who knows he has lumber in his eyes is a man who is now meek enough to help remove the sawdust in his brother's eye. But the problem is, we lack meekness in the church. And many think they see quite clearly without first examining themselves and asking God, show me my poverty of spirit that I might mourn over my sin 
and then meekly go to my brother. Pray that first before you have any conversation or any kind of confrontation in the church. I beg you, pray that prayer. Ask God to show you how poor you are. And that will inevitably lead you to repent of your own sin. And will create a spirit in you where you can go with gentleness to your brother or your sister. Meekness should mark our relationships at home. Meekness should mark our relationships in the church. Meekness should mark our relationships at work. Colossians 3 says, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Does that sound familiar? Blessed are the meek, so they shall what? Inherit the earth. You are serving the Lord Jesus is what Paul says in Colossians 3. And then it should change the way we treat those who work for us. Now, I know Colossians 4 is speaking to a culture that had a type of slavery in place. But we can apply it to being a master in the workplace as well. Colossians 4.1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So meekness should mark our relationships at home. Meekness should mark our relationships in the church. Meekness should mark our relationships at work. And meekness should mark our relationships in society in general. Titus 3.1, remember then to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, same word, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. The way you operate with all people in society, and especially the way you submit to the rulers and authorities. Romans 13, 1, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Do you see this theme repeating here about meekness? It's submitting to Christ. It's working for Christ. It's knowing that God's the one who is sovereign and in control, and those who rest and are confident in his sovereignty and in his will, we don't have to worry about these other things. And so we can rest, and we can submit, and we can meekly operate in a culture that is pointing the opposite direction from where Jesus is pointing us. Meekness should mark the kingdom citizen, and it should change how we react and act toward others. No longer do we have ulterior motives. No longer do we use words to manipulate. No longer do we try to one-up the other person. No longer do we seek to draw attention to ourselves. No longer do we need to justify ourselves at the expense of edifying our brothers. The kingdom citizen is one who is progressively being transformed into a meek person by Christ through meekly receiving his word, James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, Slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. There's that tending toward evil again. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Do you want to grow in meekness in 2014? Then submit yourself to God and to his word. And you will find meekness demonstrated all throughout God's word. 
We've already mentioned Moses and we, we've mentioned David. Time doesn't allow us to consider Abraham and his meek interactions with his nephew Lot. Or Joseph and his meek interactions with his brothers. Or countless others in the scripture who quietly and confidently trust in God's will above their own. But why go to all those examples anyway? We're here to see and savor Jesus Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Or your translations may say meek. And you will find rest for your souls. Our Lord Jesus is the pinnacle of meekness. He did not open his mouth to try to justify or defend himself. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, here it is, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He quietly and confidently rested in the will of his father. He didn't open his mouth to defend himself because greater than any desire to defend himself was his desire to do his father's will. John 5.30, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. When Peter tried to defend Jesus, Jesus said in John 18.11, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Meekness took our Savior to the cross. And so we read that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we by his poverty might become rich. And he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so he went to that awful cross and died that awful death in the place of awful people like you and me. The death we deserve, he took And in doing so, he took the wrath of Almighty God upon his shoulders. He took his father's hatred against sin upon himself. And he was pierced for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him, the chastisement was placed that brought us peace. And for with his wounds now, we are healed. Wrath of God satisfied. And the righteousness of Christ credited to our account and given to us the righteousness of Christ, the right living of Jesus counted to us his obedience, his submission, his meekness. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. That meekness has been credited to us. And that meekness should be manifesting itself in us. Not by us doing some sort of works, but by grace. For it is in this gentle Savior we find rest for our souls. So if there is anything this beatitude should do for us this morning, it should draw our thoughts to the cross. It should focus our minds on the gospel. It should fix our eyes on Christ. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight of sin 
which cling so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so we too, for the joy that is set before us, namely that we will inherit the earth, we endure. The land promises given to Abraham in the Old Testament for a parcel of land, the land of Canaan, the promised land, It was simply a foreshadowing of a greater land. For those who by faith are united to Christ, the promised seed of Abraham, are now co-heirs with him. That's why the Beatitude says we will inherit the earth. Children inherit what's been passed down to them. But the only thing we deserve, the only thing we're entitled to, is hell. But the Son will enjoy the inheritance, and all those who are united to him by faith will enjoy the inheritance. And what we will inherit, friend, is not not simply a parcel of land in the Middle East, but the whole earth. So don't be anxious about what you get or what you own or what people think about you in this life. You're going to inherit the whole earth. I say this all the time. It's easy to get anxious, especially when you don't have a lot of extra spending money. Oh, man, I'd like to go see this, the Grand Canyon, or I'd love to go do this, I'd love to do that. Stop being anxious about those things. If you are a child of God, you will inherit the whole earth. I'll have plenty of time to enjoy the Grand Canyon later. Right now, I'm going to focus on being meek. And so, we rest in God. Not having to defend ourselves or carve out something for ourselves in this age. For we know that in the age to come, all things belong to us. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians 16, As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. He's talking about himself and the other apostles, but this should be all of us. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. So don't buy into what the world says. The world's pointing you, pointing you, pointing you to what it says you need to have in order to be happy. The world thinks it's heading the right way, but in reality it's heading the wrong way. Instead, we relax, we be gentle, we be quiet, we be content, we rest, and we don't fret. According to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. Blessed indeed, friends, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we know that meekness is in no way something that can come out of our natural being. Just because someone is introverted doesn't mean they're meek. You can be introverted and still totally focused on yourself. Lord, help us to see this meekness is a fruit of the Spirit. That we are given love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Oh, Lord, we'd be fools to leave this place and go out and, and come up with some list of how we can make ourselves more meek. We need to just fall on our faces in prayer and be in this word, the instrument you use to make us more like you, to make us godly. That's the only way we'll see meekness increase in us as the Spirit has more control over us. So Holy Spirit, do your work in us. Break us of ourselves. How many of us in here, myself included, are still bucking 
kicking against the goads, trying to do our own thing. And we need to be broken more and more and more. These beatitudes aren't a one-time thing and then you go on with life. It is a constant, continual, progressive thing in our life. Father, help us to see that. Help us to believe that. And we trust you'll do a work in the life of those in here who are believers. And those who are not believers, Lord, I pray that they would see that they are a wild, bucking bronco. And their rebellion against God will bring a terrible, terrible inheritance to them. No matter what they might have in this world, it'll all be burned up. And they'll be forever separated from you. Oh God, I pray that you convict their hearts with the truth. And they would come in poverty of spirit and in repentance, place all their hope and faith in your son Jesus alone. Only then will they become kingdom citizens. And only then will they begin to see the meekness of Christ bubble up inside of them because of the indwelling spirit. And only then can they look forward to this great, great promise that we shall indeed inherit the whole earth. Thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.